Nisha Anand. Today's guest is the CEO of Dream.org, where she guides a team of storytellers, organizers, and policy experts working on some of society's toughest problems to create a better future for all by reaching across political and social divides to find common ground. She'll share insights about her work and her superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show, where we empower you. Nisha, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I am so thrilled to have you on this show and so excited to talk to you. Great. I'm excited to talk. Well, you know, you're doing some a whole portfolio of things that I just love and admire with climate change, social justice, um, and, and, and tech. Uh, I mean, you're really kind of doing it all, but your approach is really mm. a fascinating thing to me about all of this. Why don't you just take just a moment, though, and set the stage for everyone. Tell them about Dream.org. Sure. So Dream.org is a national nonprofit organization. And like you said, we work on a lot of different issues, climate, tech equity, criminal justice reform. But what makes us unique, and I think this is what you're referring to, is our approach. We really look at the problem we're trying to solve when we think of how to really work on system change as a whole. We think the problem is that the way people come together to solve problems is broken. Really, we're living in this era of toxic polarization where it's either this or that, one way or the other. And we actually think that never works. It's not just that it doesn't work now and that it's causing problems now, it's never the way to create change. So, our approach is that we fundamentally want to change that, how people come together to solve problems. We believe that we can start with who we are, our progressive values. And for me, in my head, it's a bit of a Venn diagram. We don't hide who we are. We are, for the most part, progressive people who are pushing for social change. But what's different than other progressive groups is that we have our other circle is one of radical inclusivity, that we believe we have to draw the biggest circle possible, invite as many different views as you can to the table, and sit down and come up with solutions that will work for everybody. Because we all have our blind spots where I sit. Uh, in my progressive Berkeley neighborhood is very different than most of the country. And if I don't bring them to the table, I won't know what the problems are for them. So radical inclusivity is a big piece of our approach. It's why all of our legislation is bipartisan. It's why whenever we think of a new campaign, we think, well, what's a different voice that we can bring into this issue? Who's the most unlikely ally we can bring into this conversation to demonstrate to the world that it's possible? And then the third circle of the Venn diagram for me is equity, that that is really an important value that we bring, not just as progressive people on the left, but in looking at who has been left out and left behind in most solutions, we can always bring that view to the room. And in fact, our conservative partners count on us for that. They count on us to point out where a solution they might have might hurt an entire community or where they, where they might not be thinking of values around community that are so important to us, just like I count on them to point out when my idea might be trampling on individual liberties. It's not usually the thing I see right away. And we bring that to the table. And that's where I think dream.org is quite unique. We sit right in the middle of that. 
progressive values, but with this radical inclusivity and really putting equity up front in any of the solutions that we work on. And, and we've been really successful and working on these big problem sets like climate and criminal justice reform show that it's not just possible, you know, in your PTA meeting when you're trying to decide what pizza to order, where you can see how, you know, being inclusive might be useful, but that it can work on large scale problems and create real reform. Yeah, you have been an activist for a long time, uh, even before yes. your dream.org or, or days. Uh, one of the experiences you shared uh, was of, uh, and I, I only have the vaguest details, you'll have to share the story, but, but you ended up uh, at the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and <laughs> Bailey Circus with a bike lock around your neck in protest for something. Uh, tell us about what was going on and how that has shaped your activism since. It's funny you mentioned that because just two days ago, I was coming home from Mexico and I was trying to get my global entry um, pass. And I had my little interview and I entered the country and they asked me, how many times have you been arrested? Have you ever been arrested is how it started off. And I said, yes. I said, about how many times? I said, maybe a dozen. And the woman looked at me with her jaw dropped and she says, a dozen? And I said, yeah, yeah, but it was all back in the 90s. It was all when I was an activist and protesting. She goes, okay, well, I only have seven here. And I was like, oh, that's good. And again, she stared at me like blank stare. And she was like, that's a lot of times you've been arrested, ma'am. And um, it kind of cracked me up. I'm thinking, oh, good. You know, my record seems to only show seven these days when it used to show yeah. more. But one of them that she, uh, I couldn't, I got denied from my global entry application because um, of this one, the one you mentioned, that in um, 1997, I believe, it could be a different arrest she didn't clear, but um, <laughs> the one, it was from the parks, the Federal Park Service. And so the circus arrest, I was really an act, I mean, I was a pretty radical activist in my young days, and it was like any cause that I thought was important and righteous, I would go full force with. And so there was this issue of animal abuse at the circus. And I thought this was a horrible thing that's done to animals. I learned about it. And they asked if I would take part of a protest because the Ringling, Ringling Brothers Circus was coming to town. And I said, sure, of course, sign me up. And so I trained with a group of like six or seven other activists. And we had those big U-locks around our neck. And we went to the, into the center ring right before the circus started. They were doing something where you could meet and greet some of the performers. And we laid down in the middle ring and locked our necks together. And we've been practicing this, how to get out those bike locks, do it really fast, throw away the keys and be down like within seconds. And we're sitting there and we thought we'd be there the whole night and it would stop, you know, animal abuse for the night. And what happened while I was sitting there was I looked around at the crowd and I had this sinking feeling that I've just ruined this night for all of these kids who have been looking forward to coming. They might've never seen a circus before. It might be the only thing that they're doing, you know, that month, that year. They had saved up for a lot. They had this anticipation and I was sitting there ruining the night. Was I really doing something worthwhile? And I think, you know, we could argue that back and forth. What place does civil disobedience have in moving things forward? I think it's really important. But in that moment, I wasn't sure if that was the right time for that action. 
And I had regrets within 10 or 20 minutes of sitting there with uh, this bike lock around my neck. And so I started to really study. And in fact, my master's degree in college was international peace and conflict resolution, where I went deep into the history of nonviolent struggle and learning that, yes, all of these tactics are available to us. There is a ton of different ways to really cause change. Which one is right at the right time? Which one will actually move more people to your cause? I really became in love with the idea of changing hearts and minds. And sometimes it is important to be militant and take a really hard stance to change hearts and minds. And that would include civil disobedience. Other time, that's not the way. I don't know that anybody going to the circus that night changed their mind about how they felt about animal abuse, right? Um, and so that study of nonviolence and how do you actually create social change became really important to me at that point. And I'd say it is definitely, you know, part of my path towards dream.org. Yeah. Um, along the way, you've had some, um, you've really leveraged and leaned on, built around this peace and conflict resolution master's degree. That's really the hallmark of your work today is this uh, working across the aisle uh, kind of approach. And this is really hard. It's never seemed to me to be harder than it is today. Our country is terribly divided. And I think this is not just in the United States, it's happening around the world uh, that uh, because of social media and other factors, we've become more harsh, more divided. Um, you have had some remarkable success. Can you share some of your, uh, an example of your great success with building bridges across the aisle with some, you know, maybe some specifics involved to help sure. us see what you're doing? One of perhaps the biggest victory to date for dream.org was helping pass a bill called the First Step Act. And this was a bill, it was a federal uh, piece of legislation on criminal justice reform. And we had started, we had this idea that criminal justice reform, which for my lifetime had always been only a left issue. I was arrested at you know the 2000 Republican National Convention outside the, the RNC, again, for civil disobedience, protesting criminal justice you know, system ills at that moment. I had never thought there was a Republican, certainly not at that moment, that would be on our side. When I was a high school senior in Atlanta, Georgia in 1994, that was when the, what we know as the crime bill was passed. This was a horrible piece of legislation. It ushered in that whole era of mandatory minimums and three strikes and really increased this incarceration rate in 1994. And one of the architects of that was Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich representative from Georgia, where I was from. So for me, Newt was very much the enemy and very much the poster, like the face of everything wrong with the criminal justice system. That's how I grew up. I was very passionate about that cause. So when I joined the dream.org staff in 2013, and I heard that we were going to work hard on bipartisan criminal justice reform, I thought it was an oxymoron. I couldn't imagine a single Republican wanting to be with us. But at that moment, in fact, it was red state governors and red states who were leading the way on reform. Um, you had fiscal conservatives who hated spending taxpayer dollars 
for anything really, but tax money on the criminal justice system for a system that only is effective the more and more taxpayer dollars, they're rewarded, they're incentivized for the more people they lock up. You get money per head, per bed. So this was uh, for fiscal conservatives, just like a really easy target of bad government spending. You had um, social conservatives, the religious right, who believe in second chances are usually anti-death penalty. They really want to see redemption. You have a lot of social conservatives looking at the criminal justice system and not seeing redemption, not seeing second chances, not seeing any rehabilitation in the system. And then you had libertarians, uh, that part of the conservative coalition that hates the overreach of the federal government. They don't want marijuana offenders in prison and taking up the system. And so you had three parts of that conservative coalition who were all aligned to make some reforms, not for the reasons I wanted. I see a bloated system that is racist and has been treating people unfairly um, since its inception. It was meant to be this racist institution. The way I wanted it to change was for very different reasons. But in 2013, once I saw how those were aligned, I could see something possible. And so dream.org went through this long process during the Obama administration to start bringing together a bipartisan coalition. And the leader was Newt Gingrich on the right. He wanted to see Republicans absolutely start making a stand. He got us into this mess during that bill and, and he was ready to get us out. That was a huge eye-opener for me. So we started working on this with a lot of red state governors and of course, trying to bring along our left coalition as well. And when Trump got elected, a lot of folks thought all of that would die. And our organization had to do some deep soul searching and say, are we gonna wait until maybe he's out of office and conditions might be better? Or are we gonna keep going and moving forward? And we realized that there's not a single person that is inside prisons that wanted us to wait. That if we could keep going and pass something, no matter what administration it was, we would do that. And so we did. And the first step act passed under the Trump administration with 90, uh, I think maybe 89 senators saying yes. I might have that number a little wrong. It's more. It's not less. 89 or more. In the most divided time, what we think of as most divided time in our life, you have a Republican-controlled Congress pass the First Step Act. Trump signs the bill. And to date, over 20,000 people are home from federal prison because of that bill. And that was a huge lesson for me. I worked with Newt, worked with Trump, worked with all sorts of cast of characters to get this passed. And that's just a first step. It laid the groundwork for a lot more to be possible than on the state level with a lot of bills being passed after that. And, and so it really did for me solidify that this way works. And when you have that many people for it, it's durable. It lasts. People don't want to reverse it. Yes, we're, we're seeing right now a, a problem uh, in our country um, because of the, the small, the narrow coalition that President Biden had for the Inflation Reduction Act last year, that now the um, a lot of that work, Republicans are working to reverse via the, um, the uh, debt limit. And, uh, and so there's this 
conflict. So you talk about the the durability of uh, of a broad coalition, and and boy, we're just seeing that punctuated right now. Um, and I don't know, you know, this will this will air after there is a resolution. I hope, <laughs> presuming there will be a resolution around this debt debt ceiling crisis, but. Uh, at some level, this gets to a very personal place, right? Because um, just in the same way that uh, um, Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden at some part, some point are need, need to sit down across from one another in a room and talk this through, you had to sit down in a room and talk things through with Newt Gingrich, Someone that you, in some ways, I hope I'm not exaggerating to say, maybe kind of vilified, right? So there you are with someone you may have seen as an arch villain in a prior life. Tell us about that experience of actually working with Newt uh, on this project. Yeah. Um, well, I have some experience in that my father is a Republican and loves Newt. So one of the first times I met him, I took a picture and sent it to my dad. I then sent it to all of my high school buddies um, who would never imagine the day where I might have a picture with Newt. Um, I even use it in my TED Talk as an example because, look, I assume that 98% of what is in his head I do not agree with. Um, in fact, even since that date, there have been some things that I um, would say loudly to everyone. That is something I cannot agree with. It is a horrible thing that he is saying. I can say that and still not hate him because on that 2% of things that we do agree, that's potential. That is important. So one thing that I think is important, everyone you sit down to, there's going to be something you agree with. And it's important to find that. Um, it's important to show that to the world. It's important for me to say, I have found something I can work with on Newt. I think it gives a lot of people hope. Part of that first step back coalition also involved the Koch brothers who very much on environmental stuff, we will never agree. We will in fact shout at each other and be on opposite sides of everything. But the fact that on criminal justice we do makes it easier to disagree, quite honestly. To then sit in a room where we're discussing it and debating it and have good faith with each other because we've had good faith on other issues. And uh, I grew up in a place where my dad loves to talk politics. Dinner every night is arguing. It still is. And so there's a way in which I love him. I mean, not a way in which I love my father. There's a way in which knowing that I can disagree on anything. I can disagree, you know, jumping up and down and screaming and yelling in front of my children. And still the next day we wake up and have breakfast and love each other. That to me is the beautiful part of democracy. That is what is supposed to be known as the battleground of ideas. But right now what's happening instead is if you don't agree with me, you are the villain and you're evil. Most people don't live lives like that. We actually have most people in our lives we don't agree with on everything, but we've learned how to keep them in our lives. The problem is for me that the folks that are most polarized, that are you're either all with me or all against me, they're the loudest right now. They're the loudest. They are the, the word I want to use is sexiest. That's what media likes to jump onto. That's what we all like to see. It, it, it hits those emotions. It gives us that kind of adrenaline rush of there's an enemy we have to fight on. 
the problem is that enemy is actually your next door neighbor. And if you would just have those conversations that now we're not even willing to have, we're like, I can't talk about politics at all because it might get ugly. Um, we're not going to progress. So I encourage everybody to talk about what's real. More people and poll after poll keep showing this that more people want the country to come back together. We do not want to be polarized. We just don't believe it's possible. And so for me, showing it's possible is the first step and we can all show it's possible. So um, I give tips sometimes because people ask me this when they hear these stories. My favorite phrase that I use is, I see it differently. It's a simple, easy phrase. Instead of arguing back and forth, you discuss for a while and then you're like, I guess I just see it differently. That's okay. We're allowed to see things differently. That opens up the opportunity for them to see I see things differently. The other thing I tell folks is to find a place where you agree early and often. A lot of times with masks um, is an example that's easy for folks to use. Uh, especially at the height of the pandemic, we were very much either for masks or against masks, or we had rules about it that everyone should adhere to. And if you didn't adhere to it, you were wrong, you were bad, you were evil. And on this issue, folks were like, we can't compromise. I said, actually, you can agree. For instance, I can say, me, who was more pro-mask at several moments because of all sorts of reasons, I could say, yeah, it sucks to wear a mask all day long. It's gross. I can't breathe. It's sweaty. I agree with you. That's one place of an agreement. Yeah, it really sucks that my kids are getting more pimples when they're wearing this and it makes them feel bad. And doesn't that suck? I can agree with that. It doesn't mean I fully agree with their belief. So just finding those places to agree makes every conversation go so much smoother because then they'll agree as well. I mean, maybe not. Sometimes you can't have that conversation, but I find that that goodwill, that place of just truth, yeah. it does suck to wear a mask. That goes far in making the conversation productive. Yeah. Like when we think about climate change, uh, it's important to acknowledge that there are real environmental questions around lithium mining, for instance, right? Uh, lithium is a critical part of the solution for climate change and also a problem. So, yeah, yeah it's a great uh, I, I love your mask analogy. That makes perfect sense. You you are an extraordinary human being, Nisha. Uh, you truly are. And I'm so grateful to connect with you today. Um, could you just share with us what you see as your superpower? Sure. Um, I think we've kind of covered it a little bit. I think my superpower is a bridge. I think that I was born a first-generation kid in America. I really was the bridge between the old world and the new. I served as the translator for my dad, who was very much coming to America to fulfill his American dream and yet not fluent in what is America. Me being raised here, I could be that translator. I could really see the different sides to a lot of different arguments. And I think growing up, feeling like an outsider and feeling like a misfit, I actually ended up fitting in everywhere. I grew up in Atlanta in the South in the 80s and 90s, very much a black and white town. And I was neither. I was in the middle. I got a lot of, what are you? Who are you? Trying to fit me into one or the other. And I think because of that, instead of becoming completely outcast and against everyone, I felt like I adopted the Southern spirit of everyone. 
You know, we are all neighbors. There really is no stranger in what we do. And that ability to move between the worlds and have that deep empathy for folks, I think that is my superpower. I think it's a superpower shared by a lot of first-generation kids. And we all are a mix of so many things. I am first-generation. I am Southern. I am Indian. I am a punk rock kid. I was a debate nerd. I was all of those things which means that gives me a touchstone to talk to anyone else who might have also been a debate nerd or a punk rock kid or any of these identities. And I think all of us have that. And that superpower is one I want us to really look for, honor, and respect in ourselves because we have all the tools we need to end the polarization. I think that it is within us. And um, so it is my superpower, but it's also a superpower I want everyone, everyone to find. We are complicated, yeah. amazing, all of us, I think, remarkable individuals. And so finding that peace in each and every one of us, that's what I, you know, my superpower for good. It's everyone. Yeah. Well, it, it is a great uh, superpower, uh, that, that bridge building skill. And, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine how challenging it was growing up in Atlanta, uh, where there is some white, black tension and you're neither. Uh, and 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 that I suspect helped frame your experience, your bridge building, that and your your immigrant, uh, your your relationship with your parents who are immigrants. Um, as you think about um, your skill, uh, you've shared with us some some great examples of your accomplishments already. But I wonder if you would be able to share another example and specifically in doing so hone in on the how you used your bridge building skills to make that happen um what came up for mind and i'm not sure if this is exactly what you're looking for but in 1998 i was arrested in the military dictatorship of burma and i was part of an international delegation there were 18 of us from um eight different countries, six of us were from the US and we were doing a protest to commemorate, it was a 10 year anniversary of a massacre of a, it was a pro-democratic uprising in 88. 10 years later, we were marking that anniversary in this military dictatorship and it's a brutal um, regime that junta and I was very, honored to be a part of it, but I also knew it was a huge risk. And what ended up happening is after our protest, we were all, I'm going to skip a lot of the story. We were arrested. We were sentenced to five years in jail. All of us were found. And it was a very well-coordinated action so that the minute we didn't arrive back in Thailand, the entire world knew. It was front page of the newspaper. It was even, you know, ahead of Clinton and Lewinsky on several days above the fold. And it was a big deal we didn't have any diplomatic relations in Burma at the time. And so a U.S. representative, Representative Chris Smith was head of the Human Rights Commission and he flew all the way to Thailand to try to help get us out. When we were deported, I met him and I thought, here I am, this rabble rousing young activist. I have a whole flight home with him to the States. I'm gonna sit right next to him and I'm gonna convince him of all of my opinions. This was definitely going through my head after we were deported. And I sat down next to him and I was ready. I had all sorts of things I wanted to talk to him about. And he actually instead opened up the conversation talking about Burma, of course, 
but then of all of the other human rights violations in the world that he was concerned about. And he asked me what I thought about them. And we had so much in common in human rights abuses. We never got to the stuff we didn't have in common. This was back in 1998. So this was a very like eye-opening experience for me. And I realized that although I wanna lead with the passionate things that I wanna see change in the world, I also wanted to lead with that bridge building, that humanity that I can connect to you. Um, so that's what came to mind when you asked me that. I'm not sure if that's what you were getting no. at. But I, no, that's a great, uh, great example of your bridge building skills. So thank you for sharing that. Now, you, you did say you think that other people can learn to do this and you want other people to learn to do this. What, how would you coach someone to begin developing this skill? This is this is hard stuff. This is like grown up. You, you got a master's degree in this. Give us a little bit of coaching to get us closer. You know, it's funny because we all learn this. It, this is what we teach our children. Anyone that has young children, you tell them to listen, to respect, to be kind. We tell our children these things, and yet we can't practice them ourselves. So first, I think we have to say, go look at your children. They're probably better at you than this. And also just that example from earlier about ordering a pizza at the PTA party. If you and I are going to order a pizza and, you know, you say, I want, you know, onions and sausage. And I say, I'm a vegetarian. Don't you dare put sausage on my pizza. You're not going to force me to eat sausage, right? We're going to come for a compromise. We do that every day. So I like to say first to people, like, you know how to do this. That's a really easy example that people can use. I'm not going to force you to see a movie you don't want to see. We'll find one that we both want to see. That's available to all of us. And in fact, it's necessary. When we're drafting climate policy, if you only ask me, who lives in California, my policy is going to be full. I'm going to talk about fires. I'm going to talk about drought. I'm going to talk about electric vehicles. It's going to be very California. There are people on the front lines of climate change, farmers in middle of America, where their bill would be very different and still important to address. And so that is what I want folks to approach with, is that if your solution is only made by people that look like you, it's only going to serve people that look like you or live where you live or have the same circumstances. And that's not America. So I'd say use your pizza ordering and movie watching skills and extend it a little bigger and see what you would do then. I don't need to put forth a climate policy that leaves people out. Just as much as I'd never wanted to be left out and left behind as a child in that black and white South, I didn't want to be excluded. I do not want to do that to anyone else. And so for me, when I really think about building a future for all and thinking about the promise of what should be an inclusive multiracial democracy, to me, that does mean everyone. And it's not just the diversity you like. It's not just saying, I want to make sure that women and people of color are included. Of course, I want that. I also, I, I want to make sure it's all, everybody. I don't want to build progress if it excludes some people. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, Nisha, thank you so much for sharing that powerful insight for all your time today. Before we wrap up, I, could you just take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about dream.org? And I know people are going to want to contact you 
forgive me, but I know they're going to want to tell them how they can connect with you personally. What's the best way? Sure. Well, the easiest thing to remember is dream.org. We happen to have an easy website and an easy name. You can certainly find me there. And my personal website is nishaanand.org. Um, and, you know, I'm on all the social media channels as well, but certainly find me at dream.org. And we always have a lot of ways to get involved because we have legislation running in several different states on climate and criminal justice. There's always a way to get involved in a local campaign. And we, of course, work on federal bills. We have scholarships and different training programs to get people involved in what we think is building that future that we're all dreaming of. How do you create change and really get us in the best, clean, green, great paying jobs of the future? So there are a lot of opportunities when you join dream.org. Fantastic. Well, Nisha, again, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish you every success in your extraordinary work. Thank you. All righty. Let's do some good. Yes. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.